0: You're listening to the Arise Bible Academy podcast. In this week's first lesson of the Jonah module, Jonah Takes Flight, Philip Edwards will describe how Jonah is sent on an impossible mission. We learn from Jonah about disobedience and its consequences. We hope you enjoy today's lesson, and please remember to head on over to ariseministry.org.uk where you can study our past modules see our future modules and see the other ministries we have to offer you can also follow us on social media at arise ministry uk and now over to philip edwards for today's teaching
1: welcome this evening to arise academy it's me back behind the lectern after having Uh, A week off where we heard from the students and what an excellent job uh, they all did Um, they all have come forward I think you know uh, getting used to the idea and uh, yeah so I was really pleased uh, with uh, every one of them we're going to be studying Jonah the book of Jonah just a short book uh, but we're going to see quite a, quite a strange book, really. There's no other book like it in the Bible. Uh, but before we launch into it, let's just have a word of prayer. Heavenly Father, we thank you as we open up your Scriptures. Your Spirit is available to us to reveal truth, to uh, equip us, to energize us, to cause us to understand you more and to love you more. So as we study this book over the next four weeks, just bless us. And help us, we pray in Jesus' name. Amen. Jonah, a prophet, but a subversive prophet. That's the only way that one could describe him. He tried to undermine, as it were, the very principles of God. He seems to be resisting God all the way through the book, from the very beginning right to the very end and he doesn't change in his attitude, I don't believe. I can't see it anyway. He was a rebellious prophet, a prophet who despised God simply because God loved his enemies and he didn't. And so he despised what he was told to do, despised God as it were. It's a prophetic book there are 17 prophetic books in the Old Testament. We have four of them that relate to the, what we call the major prophets. That's uh, Isaiah, Jeremiah, Ezekiel and Daniel. Then we have 13 minor prophets. Now, maybe the ones who had more to say were called major. And the ones who had less to say were called minor. Uh, They're men of great stature, though, be it Jeremiah or Isaiah or any of the ones that we would call minor. Uh, They said less, but they were still spokespeople for God. So all the prophets, really, it was God speaking through them. And that's what we generally expect from a prophetic book. What is a, a book of the prophet? It's a collection of The words that God has spoken through that person to the nation, to his people, it runs the same on every one of them. God calls a man, he tells him what to say, or he gives him a vision, he stands forth and he proclaims what God is telling him to say. He doesn't add from it, he doesn't take away from it, he just puts it out there. They're usually very devoted to God and they want to get it right, they're uh, very sincere. But Jonah, it appears to be none of these things. The book of Jonah is so completely different. Its focus, for a start, is not on the words of the prophet at all. It's, our focus is on the story around the prophet. In fact, he only says about five or six words in his prophetic message. He didn't say hardly anything at all. He appears somewhere else in the Bible. In the New Testament, Jesus makes reference to him, but in the Old Testament, he appears uh, once. It's in 2 Kings and chapter 14. It's during the reign of Jehoshaphat II. Mm, Not a very good king, this one, and Jonah prophesies his success how God would bless him. So that doesn't get him off to a very good start, does it? He says, you will conquer these northern armies that are on on your northern uh, borders. You will conquer them. Well, it's true, he did conquer them, but at the same time, Amos, who would be considered a more righteous uh, prophet than Jonah, he confronted Jeroboam saying, he would lose again these territories because he was a bad king. So before the story of Jonah even starts, um, we're suspicious of this man, suspicious of his character. What sort of book is Jonah? In this first lesson, we're going to lay a a good foundation to trying to understand the book. And then uh, in the second part, what we'll do, uh, the second lesson today, we'll read the first chapter and then week by week, we'll just pick up a chapter as we go along. What we see in this book is very carefully crafted and put together. I often think about when a, a a writer writes a detective story. How he's, does he think the whole thing out from beginning to end and then write it down, or or does it unfold in front of him? Uh, it probably goes both ways and maybe some other ways that I haven't thought of. But but when you've read a book that's well well written, you go, that was really put together well. How he brought different things in and how it all got to the the, the climax, the you know the conclusion. This. This is a piece of literature which is beautifully designed. It has pairings and it has symmetry within it. Chapters 1 and 3, they pair together, and 2 and 4 pair together. In chapters 1 and 3, we see Jonah encounters uh, non-Israelites, pagan people, he first meets the sailors, remember, in chapter 1, and then in chapter 3 he's, he's in Nineveh and he meets the Ninevites. So he's, he's in 1 and 3, he's confronting pagan people. Each chapter is a, I don't know, is a, a comic contrast, as it were. Jonah, in both these chapters, is very selfish in what he does, But these pagan people that he comes up against, they're very repentive. See, I don't understand this. Why has it turned the whole thing on its head? But it does it in both those chapters. In chapters 2 and 4, we read about the prayers of Jonah. I say prayers they're sort of conversations with God. We normally think of prayer as making supplication or petition or repenting, We and it's us approaching God in this way. But really, all conversation with God, you could say, is prayer. So he has prayers or conversations with God. One is a prayer of repentance. Well, sort of, a kind of repentance when he's sitting in the belly of the whale, or the big fish as it were, he's talking to God, and I'm not sure if he's being repentant or not. It appears he might be. Anyway, we'll look at that in the future. And in the next one, in chapter 4, remember their parents. in chapter 4 he's talking to God. I don't think he's praying. He's severely reprimanding God, actually. He's telling him off for being too nice and too good. I don't know if that justifies prayer, but there we go. That's what it is. It's a, it's a beautifully written, symmetrical book of pairs. It's a satirical book as well. Satire. What is satire? Satire is saying the opposite to what you actually mean. And you're having a bit of a dig or a bit of a go, a go at it. If you give someone something and they're not very grateful, you might say something like this, well, don't go overboard on your gratitude. You're not, you know what I mean? You're saying the opposite. You're saying you're very mean with your gratitude. You should show a bit more appreciation because you put it in this satirical way. You reverse it to impact what you're saying. Everything in this book is opposite to what it should be. The whole book is satire really from beginning to end. And as I unfold it with you, I say, you're right about that. There's nothing that's normal. There's nothing that's right. The story is full of stereotype characters who ironically do the opposite to what you think they would do. Every one of them. You expect the prophet to act in a certain way and he acts in the reverse. You expect the sailors to act in a certain way or the king and they do quite the opposite. It's satire, you see, all the way through. The prophet, the man of God, he rebels and despises what God is saying. Well, that's not normal. The sailors who are Supposed to be immoral men, that's what we imagine they would be rough, immoral men, they're soft and they're repentant and they turn to God in humility in what they do. I don't get this at all. The king, he is the king of the most powerful, murderous empire that the world has seen up to that time and he humbles himself before God. And the funny thing is, if you read it closely, He didn't even get to hear Jonah speak. It was hearsay. And from this hearsay, the man humbly falls before God and makes the whole nation turn as well. You go, is this a true story? Is this actually real? And to top it all, the cows repent. Really? Really? The cows repent as well? Well, apparently they do. This kind of story is what we call satire. Let me give you a definition. A story about well-known figures who are placed in extreme circumstances and they all use humour and irony to critique their stupidity and characteristic flaws. Oh, I'm getting to understand the book now. I need to go home and perhaps read it again and read it with different eyes. The third sort of book it is, it's a children's book. Now, if you grew up as a child in church, you attended, well, years ago, they used to call it Sunday School, they give it another name now, I'm surely where people told you these stories, you would have heard the story of Jonah and the whale. It's one of the top ten stories when scripture comes to you in story form uh, created for a child its theology is not brilliant you can understand that can't you they've 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 manipulated it somewhat but sometimes our understanding of scripture is based on those stories that we heard a long long time ago but we really need to read them again <laughs> i've got one of those books this is it the title's good I don't want to. But if you read through it, it, it's very interesting. It it, it shows him out to be a lovely little fellow, really. You know, it's written for children. He's a little bit stroppy and difficult. And then he gets on board the ship and there's a storm and he's thrown into the sea. And then the big fish comes and swallows him up. Let me read this. Here, he's sitting in the the belly of the big fish. That's probably an impossibility. We'll get to that later. Anyway, he's there in the story. Listen as I read this to you. Swoosh, swoosh, went the fish's stomach. Thump, thump, went Jonah's heart. It was time to pray. Now Jonah wanted to obey. No, he didn't. No, he didn't. He didn't for one minute. Through this whole story, he never wanted to obey for one minute. And when God made him do it and God did what he wanted to do, he was still difficult with God. So there he is. The, the whale spits him out. We know this. And he lands on dry ground. And off he goes then to Nineveh, running joyfully to give the message. God spoke to Jonah. Jonah. What did he say? He said, go, go to preach in Nineveh. And what do you think? Jonah did this time. He headed for Nineveh in a hurry. No, he didn't. I don't think for one minute he went in a hurry. And Jonah had learned to quickly obey. No, he didn't. He didn't for one minute. See, but you read that or it was read to you or you've read it to others. It's not true. It's just not true. It's a lovely story for children. Don't get me wrong, but we shouldn't take scripture and make lovely stories and twist it all into Anyway, I won't be too hard on the children's books, but I will leave it there. I want to rescue it. I want to rescue that story, rescue that book, and I I want to pull it back into sacred scriptures and be truthful with it to say what it really says. What does every book of the Bible seek to do anyway? All of them, all 66 of them, is to reveal to us, surely, the character of God. Not show us necessarily how wonderful Moses was, or Abraham was, or David, or Daniel. They they did good and they did bad, all of them in their lives, but it isn't about them. Ultimately, it's about the character of God and the purposes of Jesus in coming All of it points to these. As you read any book in the Bible, look for the character of God and where you see the purposes of Jesus being already foreshadowed, as it were, in that book. There's other things that have hijacked uh, good biblical stories and changed them for us. Christmas is good at this. Or we think of this lovely baby, don't we, in a manger? And that's true, it's a lovely baby. There's nothing lovely about the birth of Jesus' story, apart from the fact that he was born. It's an ugly, violent story, isn't it, really? But we make it sound nice. There's one verse, and I'll just read this one to you to show you how we've twisted it somewhat. Isaiah 9 and 6, remember that talking about one will be born? For us, a child is born. To us, a son is given, and the government will be upon his shoulders. It sounds so nice, doesn't it? What's it really saying? That one day, this man, Jesus Christ, will be the king of the whole world, and everyone, whether they choose to or not, will bow their knee in homage to the king of kings. Oh. It's not like this mild Jesus thing. Is it? It's something more dynamic and strong and powerful. And that's what the prophet was saying. He wasn't talking about a lovely baby. Now, don't misunderstand me. Of course, it's lovely. I understand that. But he was being very prophetic and strong about the coming of the king of the world. It's possibly the most brilliant told story... I would say in the Old Testament, I daren't say in the whole Bible because people will say no, no, either the birth of Jesus is the most brilliant story or the death of Jesus is the most brilliant story. But if we're going to confine ourselves to storytelling, this is a brilliant story, both in the Old and in the New Testament. It's full of wit. It's full of irony, humour and sarcasm brilliantly put together Jonah in this story he represents the covenant people of God that's who he is depicting and what this what this book does it holds up for us this horrible man and really scripture does this doesn't it in the New Testament we're told it is a mirror the Word of God is like a mirror to us, and because as, as you read it, what it does, it reflects the reality of the truth of God's Word back into your soul, and if something in you harmonizes with what you're reading about here, it's pointing out something that's wrong on the inside of you, without being confronting, but definitely pointed it out. That's what a parable does. We've been studying those, haven't we? It points out something without somebody wagging his finger in your face. It simply reflects the truth, and you go, Oh, this is me, I see me in this. As this story is held up, this horrible man, he is a reflection of the nation of Israel, or many of the nation of Israel. We, we see in him. his pride. He won't humble himself before his God. We see his judgmentalism. God was looking to give the people a chance. He wasn't looking to give them any chance at all. His small-mindedness, his hard-heartedness, his tribalism, all of these things, we catch sight of them in this little story. The story then brilliantly shines a light into the souls of God's people. Fourthly, it was a book about a prophet. Jonah is a prophetic book, but like I'm explaining to you, not like any of the other Old Testament books. The opening words of Jonah might indicate that it was if we look at many of the prophetic books, they all start with the same sort of verse one. The word of the Lord came to. In this one, it's the word of the Lord came to Jonah, the son of Amittai. If you were to just go over to the next book in the Bible, you'd find the book of Micah. It starts almost the same way. It says it like this. The word of the Lord that came to Micah of Morsheth, during the reign of Joham, Ahaz, and Hezekiah, the kings of Judah. It starts the same. You're thinking, oh, we're going to read another book of a prophet, where the prophet's going to say something. In the book of Minor, uh, sorry, of, of Micah, it's seven chapters where he gets visions and words from the Lord and simply proclaims them. He does no part. His his life is not important to us. He's simply proclaiming or speaking forth what God has shown him. The book of Jonah is not a prophecy. It is a story about a prophet. You see how it's so different from all the other prophetic books. God speaking to his people through a story is God's message to his people. The Bible, it holds many different forms of literature. There are 66 books there, books of the law. It's it's important that when you read one of the books, you put a different hat on each time. So when you're reading a book of the law, you you look at it for what it is, a book related to the law. When you read a historical book, well, you need to have a historian's hat on looking at the detail of the history and how it all fits together. We have books of poetry, books of prophecy, the Gospels, a very unique collection of books that just dissect the life of Christ for us in a wonderful way, the books of wisdom, the letters that the early apostles wrote, all different, and we need to read them differently, just not roll on thinking we're reading the same sort of book. What kind of story is this? This book of Jonah stands alone. It doesn't fit into any of those categories. It really, really is a unique book. And it has a rather unique storytelling style to it. There are two general views about this book. The first is the author, who we do not know who it was, I'm sure it wasn't Jonah for a start. You wouldn't write that book about yourself, would you, to be enfolded in the annals of scripture for thousands and millions of people to read for thousands of years? You definitely wouldn't have written that book. So I I don't think he wrote it. Somebody else wrote the book. Was he writing a historical account of what took place? Is that what he was writing? Or is this a parable? just a parable. It never happened at all. It simply was a story. It it might have had a real person in the story, but the events weren't real at all. When we come to the New Testament and Jesus told parables, stories, it's usually very clear when we did our little study on parables, I did a bit of reading around it, some people suggested there were, there were 50 parables. Some said there were 30-odd parables. So some people called parables that weren't really parables at all. They might have simply been sayings of Jesus, but somehow they, they called them parables. We won't fall out about any of this, really. I mean, we just hold on to the Scriptures and read it and believe what God is trying to tell us through it. But when Jesus told a parable, He never gave names to anyone. He said there was a a farmer, a woman was sweeping, or, uh, you know, different things. A a fisherman was doing this, or or people did that. There's no names. One of them has a name in the parable, which, which throws it out of kilter. Was this really a parable? We read about it in Luke 16, from verses 19 to 31. It's the parable of the rich man and... Lazarus. Uh, Why does Jesus do this? He throws in this name. See, by throwing in the name and he's never done it before, is this a parable? Or was there a man called Lazarus? Remember the, the parable just briefly. There is this rich man who has everything, but he's quite selfish. And there's this poor man, Lazarus, who sits at his gate and has nothing. This man, this poor man is a a worshipper of God and the rich man isn't and they both die and when they die of course they go to their destiny not their eternal destiny the destiny at death which was a place called Hades it was a place of the departed spirits there was a chasm uh, an opening gap for the righteous those that were looking forward and there was another part for those that were Uh, rebellious and had no mind for God, and when they died in the Old Testament and coming up to Jesus, they were divided at death into these two places. Hades, not really hell, but the place of departed spirits. We see one man, he's gathered to the bosom, it says in the authorised, he's held by Abraham, he's close to him. The other man is in a place where he's experienced some sort of torment, he's anxious, He's concerned for his family. He's, he's obviously missed the mark himself, and he wants, he wants maybe someone to go and tell his, the remainder of his family. They need to get their act together, or they'll end up in this place, separated from the people of God. Was that a story that Jesus was telling? Or was that something that he had seen? It was a, a real picture, you see he would have seen it. Jesus, from his vantage point of heaven, would have seen this place. It existed prior to Christ's coming. So was he just speaking a reality, not a parable? And that's why this man, Lazarus, has a name. He was a real person. I don't know, nor does anyone else. The jury are out on that one as well, and so you're out on it as well. You can choose whether that was a parable or that was a real story. <laughs> See, this story is the same. It sounds a ridiculous, far fetched story, but it has a man's name in it. Are we being messed with again here? We don't know the name of the king, or we don't know the name of anyone else. We just know one man, and his name is Jonah. And it's the same with the story of Lazarus. We don't know the name of other people, but we know the name of Lazarus. Dare I say, as you read these stories, you're at liberty to make your own mind up. I'll give you some pointers now to where I'm thinking of going. Jonah in the great fish is a type of Jesus in the grave. We know that. Jesus even said it himself. Just as Jonah was three days and nights, so I will be three days and nights in the earth. So it was a parable about Jesus. Historical events in the Bible can be fixed in time This one can't. So you go, when did this happen? If this really happened and it was an historical event, why can't we date it or place it like all the other historical events that we read about? We can't. Recorded events, as I said, in Israel's history gave names. Names of the king, names of the opposition, names of the prophet, names of everyone. This... Doesn't do it. It's a beautiful story though. It's a beautiful piece of literature, while at the same time it's comic, it's extreme, and it's even a bit crazy. What do I mean by crazy, extreme? The prophet in this story is the most hated person. It's a bit odd. God's message only contains five Hebrew words. God is severely reprimanded by his servant. The bad guys are the good guys and the good guys are the bad guys. As I said, the cows repent. The word huge or big or enormous it's through the whole book. In fact, I will point it out a bit later. It's used at least 15 times in the first chapter. It's like, really? Really? And much of the story is just blown out of all proportion in its numbers and its sizes and what it's talking about. Was it a prophecy? Or was it a real event? Was it a parable? don't be afraid to call it a parable. See, it doesn't matter. Calling it a parable doesn't doesn't take the truth away from what it says. Just the same as when Jesus told a story, they weren't less truthful than an event that he recorded for you. The truth is what Jesus spoke all the time, be it parable or recording a true event. It was truth. So whether this was a story or a real event... The truth is in here, just the same, as it was with Jesus. The truth is, though, we don't expect this in the Bible. We don't, we don't expect such satire and irony. But what it does, it wakes us up to the worst tendencies that are found in God's people. One little thing before we have a break. His name, Jonah, means dove. And dove, the son of faithfulness. That's what Amatiah means. Can you believe it? Dove, the son of faithfulness. That's what he's called. He's in fact the most faithless person in the whole story. I mean, the sailors have more faith than Jonah. The 120,000 people who come to God in repentance have more faith than Jonah. The evil king, the evil wicked king, he himself has more faith than Jonah. There we go. My introduction is complete. We're going to have some fun, aren't we, with this book, without a shadow of a doubt. We can explore this brilliant little book. And at the end, we will discover something wonderful about God. Because it's about God, isn't it? It's not about Jonah. They're just actors on the side. The principle is God always. It tells us something wonderful about God. But at the same time, it reflects something of our own soul as we identify ourselves in this story let's have a little break welcome back then to uh, part two of this first week's lecture on Jonah we are in a moment we'll read the chapter together Ali is going to come and read it to us Uh, what I'll do once uh, we've had it read to us I'll give you an overview of of the chapter and, uh, and I want to deal with one topic uh, as well added on to that, which is the topic of disobedience and uh, see what God will show us uh, from this, but also from uh, the things that we can discover about disobedience. So, Eileen, if you'll come.
2: Um, chapter 1 from the Book of Jonah. The word of the Lord came to Jonah, son of Amittai, Maybe he will take notice of us so that we will not perish. And the sailors said to each other, come, let us cast lots to find out who is responsible for this calamity. They cast lots and the lot fell on Jonah. So they asked him, tell us, who is responsible for making all this trouble for us? What kind of work do you do? And where do you come from? What is your country, and from what people are you? And he answered, I am a Hebrew, and I worship the Lord, the God of heaven, who made the sea and the dry land. This terrified them, and they asked, What have you done? They knew he was running away from the Lord, because he had already told them so. The sea was getting rougher and rougher. So they asked him, what should we do to you to make the sea calm down for us? Pick me up and throw me into the sea, he replied, and it will become calm. I know that it is my fault that this great storm has come upon you. Instead, the men did their best to row back to land, but they could not for the sea grew even wilder than before. Then they cried out to the Lord, Please, Lord, do not let us die for taking this man's life. Do not hold us accountable for killing an innocent man. For you, Lord, have done as you pleased. Then they took Jonah and threw him overboard, and the raging sea grew calm. At this, the men greatly feared the Lord, and they offered a sacrifice to the Lord and made vows to him. Now the Lord provided a huge fish to swallow Jonah, and Jonah was in the belly of the fish three days and three nights.
1: Well, after lesson one, you might have listened to that a little bit differently that time. I don't don't know. Anyway, um, I'm going to have some fun with this uh, first chapter. So we'll just do a chapter each week and uh, look at some other topics uh, surrounding that. The story opens with God commissioning Jonah to go to Nineveh and uh, to preach against these evil people. Nineveh was the capital city at one time of uh, Assyria, this great powerful nation, a nation that were bitter enemies of Israel, uh, some of Israel's worst enemies really. But instead of obeying God, he boards a ship going in the opposite direction isn't that a weird thing to do it's like god says go east i'll go west but instead of obeying god he boards this ship and he moves in the opposite direction from god now a big question here is why did he run away he had reasons for it is he afraid to do what god has asked him to do Does he not like the Ninevites? What's the real reason? Well, it'll come later as we open up the scriptures more. So the man of God, he tries to run from God. Well, he knew that wasn't possible. He was a prophet of the Lord. I mean, He knew the scriptures. He knew that God was the God of the whole world. How do you run away from the God of the whole world when you're living in the world? It's not possible. But this is what he tries to do. He boards a ship full of pagan sailors. He goes down to the depths of the ship and sleeps. Is that strange? you'd have thought it'd have been a little bit nervous, wouldn't you, to sleep? Running away from God, disobeying God, he sleeps. And it says, God sends a huge storm. Why? To wake him up? What was the point of the huge storm? Everything is huge. I said this in lesson one. Let me show you from chapter one. He says, go to a great city, the great city of Nineveh. Then he goes on to say, then the Lord sent a great wind, in verse 4, and a violent storm. It wasn't just a storm or a wind. It was great and it was violent. And he fell into a deep sleep. You see the way he's making this so ridiculously enormous in everything. Then the sailors said in verse 7 to each other, Come, let us cast lots and find out who is responsible for this calamity. They're sailors for heaven's sake in a storm. It's just blowing it all out of proportion. And then we move on and then we read in verse 12. Again it says, and it will become calm. I know that it is my fault that this great storm has come. And it goes on to say, "For the sea grew even wilder." Uh, you get the picture. It's, it's getting out of proportion." Moving on, verse 15. Then they took Jonah and they threw him overboard into the raging sea. <laughs> and the same. And the same men greatly feared, "Oh, it's so big." And what did God send to, to swallow him up? A great fish! not just It's comical. It really is comical when you read it and you, you see this because as you read it through just nicely, you don't see it all because once it's pointed out, you go, yeah, this is ridiculous. The way the writer's writing this story is, you don't need all this. A, a good author wouldn't put all that stuff in, really. But he's making a point, you see. It's satire. It's, it's, he's making a comic of it in a way. The big storm then, the huge storm, was it to wake him up? Everything is in reverse here. The prophet is asleep and the sailors are awake. Usually when the prophet comes onto a scene, he is the only one awake and everyone else is sleeping in the world, aren't they? They're not realising what's going on and the prophet's the only one awake. In this one, the sailors are awake and the prophet is asleep. The sailors discern that a divine power is at work. The people, when a prophet spoke, they didn't see that God, this divine power, was at work. The prophet told them what God was doing. We got the reverse. He's sleeping and they're saying, there's a great God here doing something to us. They throw dice And they discover that Jonah is the culprit. Well, normally it's the prophet who's on God's side and the people are the culprits. He's telling them how they're erring from God's path. It's turned it all around. These immoral uh, pagan sailors are doing the prophetic work and the prophet prophet is himself asleep. They asked Jonah to explain (laughs) explain himself. It's funny, isn't it? Uh, He's already told them that he's running away from God. So they said, could you just explain yourself? This isn't normal. This doesn't happen. Could you just tell us what's going on here? Then he starts spouting off to them. Did you notice his response? A load of mumbo-jumbo, he says. Listen what he says. He says, he is a Hebrew who worships the Lord. That's a lie. He wouldn't be there if he was a Hebrew who worshipped the Lord. He would be on his way to Nineveh. He wasn't worshipping the Lord at all. And he said, the Lord who makes the sea and the dry land. Well, what's he doing on a boat, a stupid man? How ridiculous is this story? I tell you, it's just beyond. Then the sailors asked Jonah, what are we supposed to do then in the midst of this? You're the root cause of this thing, this thing that's happening listen what he suggests he suggests they kill him and throw him overboard doesn't that sound really noble of this man what a coward he is what a rebellious man for him this is his way of copping out of doing what god has told him to do throw me overboard and we'll realize as we keep reading the story he asks to die three more times. What is it with this man? How strange is he? It sounds, like I said, very noble. Throw me overboard. But what a selfish. So that he wouldn't have to do what he didn't want to do. What better way to avoid Nineveh? He's also doing something really horrible. He's causing these men to be the cause of his death. If he's so noble, why didn't he just jump over the side of the ship to start with? Why try and drag them in to make in them the cause of his death? Terrible man. They are reluctant. And they repent while they're doing it. This is, this is weird, isn't it? You can imagine these men, they would have just said, oh, all right, mate, off you go. If this will do the trick, overboard you go. They're repenting. Oh, God, forgive us for what we're doing. What are we talking about here? And as soon as they throw him overboard, of course, the storm subsides. And it says they feared the God of Israel. This is... He didn't fear the God of Israel. He didn't care what God was saying. These, These men, these pagan men, they're fearing what God is saying. But God... He foils Jonah's plan to escape, doesn't he? As Jonah is sinking, God provides the fish. No, 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 no. I like yours. A huge fish, it says in your, uh, the translation you have. It says a big fish. A huge fish to swallow him up. Now, under normal circumstances, this would have been certain death, wouldn't it, to be thrown there? But in this story, everything is upside down. None of it really is sensible. Jonah's submarine in death becomes his passage back to life again. And the chapter ends. That's it. That's the story. How strange. I said it... The story points to the character of God. I've got to explain something to you that you'll fully understand about something of God's character. God loves his enemies, we know that. He commanded us to love his enemies, and Jesus loved his enemies, so we, we must. So you need to know what these Ninevites were like, these Assyrians. They were opposed To everything that God held dear, they were really, really evil, evil people. Uh, This is where we wouldn't let the children listen to this bit, Uh, it's going to be a little bit graphic. I've got to make it graphic so you know how evil they really were, so just bear with me. Usually when you read the scriptures, countries went to war every year. It appears when spring came, it was time to go out to war so you could capture more slaves to do more work for you. You could extend your land mass, as it were, and make yourself more powerful or richer, whatever it was. So this was a common occurrence. We know that David, remember the day that he didn't go to war, it says, he went off and committed that terrible sin with Bathsheba. So it was a common occurrence. When the Assyrians went to war, they killed and raped all of the women, as a matter of course. It says, I'm sorry about this, they ripped babies from their mothers and just destroyed them. They crushed children's heads against the wall. They they've dug up sort of um, uh, uh, freezes. Pictures, or you know, it's of, got of pictures of all this, so they know it's it's all true. This was all put over the palace walls because uh, they were really proud of how vicious and evil they were as people. They used to skin uh, the enemy when they caught them, and then impale them and leave them up there to die. They forced parents to watch their children being burnt to death and then they would kill the parents making sure they had already seen their children be killed in this way there was another account of where they buried their victims in the ground heads just above the soil and left them either the sun would kill them or the fact that they had have no nothing to eat or drink or animals would come and just just awful it was recorded that entire cities would rather commit suicide than be taken by the assyrians I'm sorry, that bit's over. But what I'm trying to paint a picture of is that God loved them. You go, really, Philip? God loved them. He loved his enemies. Somehow in the heart of God, in the character of God, we find the God who loves. God looked at Nineveh and decided he wanted to do something about it. We read a little bit later, it's this wonderful expression. It says they didn't know their right from their left. It's a lovely, and we'll we'll get to it later, but it's like they didn't know where they were going. They were lost in life. Uh, To be lost is not a permanent state at the end. We often think about people are lost. Being lost is being in this world without Jesus to help you find the way around. That's lost. These, These Assyrians were lost. They had some come so disconnected from reality, they were in a complete mess. So God turns to his prophet, Dove, the son of faithfulness, this wonderful prophet, and sends him to the people to express to them the heart of God, that God is a loving God. It doesn't matter how evil and vile they are. He loves his creation and he loves them and he wants to save them. Before God acts in judgment over any situation, scripture indicates he comes and has a look first. So in this situation, he came to have a look at what the Assyrians were doing was true. There's a definition of grace, it's it's really good. It's about God stooping from heaven to come to us to, as it were, act on our behalf. We get this several times in the scriptures. Remember the Tower of Babel. It said the news had got to him of the awful thing that they were doing. It says in Genesis 11 and 5, but the Lord came to see for himself what they were doing. God, in his grace, had heard something, but he was reaching out to see if this thing was true. If God ever acted in judgment, it wasn't out of revenge, it was out of love, knowing that if this was to continue, it would damage so many other people's lives. He never took pleasure in revenge, ever. And he won't, in the final analysis, ever take pleasure. Because he loves those who he has created. He did the same with Sodom and Gomorrah, remember? Genesis 18 21. He says, I will go down and see if what they have done is as bad as the outcry that has reached me. So God looks. He takes a first hand look to see. God's judgment is an act that is motivated always by love. We shall look at this later, as I said, in more detail. God loves the Ninevites. It's too much for us to believe that, to see it, because we judge it from our own heart position. It says in Psalm 145 and verse nine, the Lord is good to all. He has compassion on all that he has made. He wanted to do something with these Assyrian people to turn them away from their wickedness. They were his creation after all. (laughs) <laughs> Jonah it says, he pays his fare and gets on the boat. Where is this place, Nineveh, from where he is? It's in the far northeast. So where does he book a fare to? The furthest southwestern point. <laughs> you go, really? Tarshish, this is a place in Spain. There were several Tarshish. This is the one in Spain. This was the end of the known world. No one had gone beyond Tarshish. They didn't know what was there at all. Civilization went that far and no further at that time. He went as far as he could in the opposite direction. Remember years ago, there was an expression about Timbuktu Do you remember that? It was, where on earth is Timbuktu? Well, it's at the end of the world. So if you ever go to Timbuktu, you've gone to the end. It it is, there's nothing beyond Timbuktu. I don't hear that expression much today. So Tarshish was Jonah's Timbuktu, wasn't it? It was like the very end of things. Jonah, as far as we can tell, is the only prophet who ever runs from God. In this story, he is the only person who is running from God. He's not running because he's scared. He knows how compassionate the Lord is and that he would find a way to bring grace and mercy to his enemies. See, Israel hated the Assyrians. That's a strong word, but it was strong. He was never going to go and prophesy to them because what if they turned? He would be the most hated prophet in Israel. That's one good reason for not going, but he's disobeying God the same. He didn't want this to happen. He didn't want them to turn. See, he knew that God would turn them He knew about the mercy and grace of God. He was hoping God would show him a bit of mercy and grace as well. But God had given him a directive. He didn't want to save them. He wanted them to rot and to die and for God to judge them. Hmm. I talk about this thing called disobedience now. In the West today, it's not a very positive thing, is it, to be obedient? Disobedience suits the fallen nature a lot better than obedience. Obedience is irritating. It's annoying. It's irksome. Because we don't want to obey. We want to satisfy our own vision and our own desires. In Ephesians 2 and 2, it tells us that the sinful nature before we come to Christ, if you could sum it up in one word, is disobedient. We were disobedient by nature. We were deserving of the wrath of God because of our disobedience. We want to rule our own lives, you see. Don't you tell me what to do i do what I want to do. I'm the captain of my ship, no one tells me. The devil has twisted the scriptures to make it sound like we better submit to God or else. Lots of Christians think like that. That somehow God is on their case, looking for them to fall and to, to, to trip so he can jump on them and deal with them as though he were some sort of judge. The scripture says, God says, I don't want to judge. Jesus, I'll make you the judge. But Jesus says, no, I don't want to judge. I'll give everyone the word of God, and the word of God can judge them, because I don't want to judge people. I haven't come to condemn people. I've come to save them. And God doesn't want to condemn. He loves everyone that he has made. And so we have the word. So he says, read the word, and the word itself will judge you. It's the Word that judges us, not Jesus. Jesus is our saviour. He's not a schoolmaster. Some schoolmasters are nice. I was a nice one. Some schoolmasters are horrible. Well, all schoolmasters have to be a little bit horrible. Otherwise, the kids will just steamroller all over them and destroy them. So you pretend to be nasty, but you're not nasty, really. You just start there, and then you mellow down a bit until you've got, you know... To survive, to survive, that is. God's not a tyrant. He is a loving, heavenly Father. He was the Father of the Assyrians, as well as the Father of Israel. He was the Father of all his creation. He calls us to obey him, not to spoil our fun, but it's for our good. He knows what's for our good. When God comes and works in the world, he looks for people who will obey him. God came through the history of the world and made covenants with certain men, but they were always men who obeyed him. Remember he came to Abraham, he said, lead everything and come. And it says he obeyed, not knowing where he was going, having no relationship with God prior to that, he was obedient. Noah, before that, it wasn't really a covenant that he cut with Noah, but we call it a covenant. Noah obeyed him. He says, Noah, I want you to do something related to something you've never ever seen before. Will you do it for me? What do you want? I I want you to build a boat. A boat it had never rained ever before and they weren't particularly near the coast but he said yes you want a boat i'll build a boat so he cut a covenant he rectified it with a you know the ark and the um yeah the rainbow yeah and And then he comes to Moses and he says, Moses, I want you to do this now. Moses is a little bit reluctant, isn't he? But in the end, God persuades him like he would. And David himself, a man who was obedient, a man who loved God dearly in his heart, made lots of mistakes, but loved God and was obedient to God. So God is looking for obedient men and women We might not understand what's going on, but we respond obediently to what we believe he has said. Even if you've got it wrong, that doesn't matter. If you believe God has said something, you must be obedient to it. You might discover God didn't say that, but God is looking at the heart that you responded in a positive, obedient way. He can sort everything else out. He's looking for this obedience. Jonah, then, is invited into God's story. Just be obedient, Jonah. Don't think about everything. Trust me, do what I'm saying. He could have entered into a wonderful, brilliant story. If he was true, that is, and if it's real, never mind. Okay, but enter into this story, and it'll be so exciting. He wants no part of it. He has his own ideas, his own vision. They don't fit into God's. So he's gonna do what he wants, which is the definition of disobedience. Disobedience is our vision versus God's vision for our life. We have a competing vision of what is good for us. We think, I don't want to do that. That isn't the best thing for me. See, that's your vision for your life. That's not God's we think we know what's good for us but god knows what's better for us we do want to make sense to us it's got to make sense to me why god has asked me i'm sure he's asked you to do things that you didn't know the end from the beginning you weren't sure but you said I'm convinced God has told me to do this, so I don't know where it's going, but I'll step out into this. Am I going to walk my life or God's life? See, Jonah is facing this challenge in his own heart, but he's not going to obey God. He's going to run as far as he can in the opposite direction. Instead of dealing with his poor, miserable little vision of God, which is what he had. He tries to run from life, as it were. Children run after what they want, don't they? You see it every day. And you see the mum screaming at him. Oh, I suppose dad screams at him Not as well these days, so. Stop! The child slows down for a minute, thinking, No, I won't. And he runs again. He nearly stopped. But he doesn't see the danger, does he? He doesn't know what he's running into. He doesn't see the road. He doesn't know of those things. But the father knows the danger, and so he tries to stop him, but he has a vision. The child has a vision, and his vision is better than his parents' vision of what he wants. So he overrides his parent's command. He's running for the good life, for something better that he sees that his parents know nothing about. He's running for that, but he's unaware of the dangers. God wants Jonah to be involved in this amazing, amazing event. Imagine going to such dare I say, hellhole? Such a terrible place. Preaching and the whole community, 120,000 people come to Christ. Oh, please, Lord, give me the chance. I mean, that you'd be made up as a preacher forever. You wouldn't have to prepare another sermon. You'd just tell that story again and again and again and again. And of course, it would grow bigger and bigger and bigger. I understand that. He said, no, I don't want none of that. I want what I want. See how foolish we are with our disobedience. When Jesus calls us to follow him, we let our vision for our lives die because the vision that he has for our lives is much better than ours. That's why we obey. Christianity then is letting my vision die and letting his vision take over. Is there some part of your life where you're running to Tarshish? You're fleeing? God says, "Uh, we want to do this. And you go, I'm busy doing this. Maybe I'll get round to that when I finish doing this. Are you running in the opposite direction? Or are you um, going through life and it's difficult, but you're just waiting till this difficult period passes when God is saying, you're supposed to be over here, but you're here, hoping that this difficult period would somehow evaporate away. No, no, we need to go where God has called us. God's extravagant love and grace as it was in the case of Jonah, is following him every step of the way. And God wins in the end. Amen? Amen.
0: You've been listening to the Arise Bible Academy podcast. We hope you enjoyed today's teaching and please remember to head on over to ariseministry.org.uk if you would like to partner with us by making a secure online donation. You can also now follow us on social media at ariseministryuk. Arise Ministry, a living legacy.